Hi again, welcome back. It is Louisville Bats Franchise at 40, Episode 1, the official kickoff to this podcast celebrating 40 years of this Louisville baseball franchise. Thanks for being with us. I'm Nick Curran. Hope you will like, comment, subscribe, uh, check us out however you can. Uh, the podcast available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Uh, we would love to uh, have you along if you want to click that subscription button and certainly leave us a review as well. We would appreciate that. Uh, this podcast celebrating 40 years of this Louisville baseball franchise. It began in 1982. And uh, we get set to enter the 2022 season. And uh, when thinking about the first guest for this podcast, there was really only one man that would fit that bill. And it is Bats president Greg Galliette. He joined the organization in 1984, uh, the third season it was around ever and has been here ever since. Uh, quit a full-time job, which you'll hear in a little bit, to take a chance working in professional baseball and has worked his way up through uh, sales, vice president, he's worked in the ticket office, uh, the senior vice president, and now the president of the bats uh, a long time coming and uh, a lot of stories from over the years greg's been here longer than anyone and the perfect person to kick off this podcast series the first guest taking us back through the years from the redbirds days and a lot of that discussed here a lot of great memories from old cardinal stadium and then the decision to build a new stadium and a lot of great people that greg has encountered along the way as well so if you uh enjoyed Redbirds games back in the day, a baseball aficionado, and enjoy the history of uh, Louisville largely and, and baseball in this city. Sit back and enjoy episode one, Louisville Bats franchise at 40, Greg Galliette. Greg, thanks for thanks for being guest number one. It thanks is, for inviting me. I'm, I'm honored. Uh, I don't know what I can bring to the table here, but uh, we'll see where this all goes and where it takes us. You're the only person that I think could be uh, the first guest you've seen more than anyone, I think, of this of this franchise. Certainly more than anyone in this building right now. There's no doubt about that. Uh, well, want to start with you. You, um, you started with the team after the 1984 season. Mm -hmm. So uh, the the team was three seasons in. Obviously, right. 1982 was the the first year of the franchise. Want to go back before you you started. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you remember, if anything? about the um, – we talked about it in, in kind of the, the prequel episode. The, the team got booted the, – the team that was here, the Colonels, got booted, ended up being coming the Pawtucket Red Sox, got right. booted basically in the early 70s out of Fairground Stadium because right. UofL football was, was right. ahead of steam and they were going to make – it was going to be football only, putting in bleachers and, and the grass gone and all that. What do you remember – if anything about professional baseball sort of leaving Louisville, it had been kind of a fixture sure. since the 1800s. Sure. It, it left and, and uh, was gone for about a decade. What do you remember about that? Um, my father had passed away when I was five back in 1965 from Hodgkins. And um, one of his best friends kind of stepped in and um, had season tickets to UofL football, basketball. Uh, and my grandfather obviously uh, assumed more of a fatherly role. But in all of that, uh, I found myself going to a lot of University of Louisville football, basketball games in the 60s, getting to see Butch Beard, Wes Unseld. Uh, and then obviously when Denny Crum came in, uh, got to meet Denny actually prior to his first year at the old uh, Crawford Gym office. Um, had some really favorite players in that group, Jim Price, Al Vilcek, 
Michael Lahan, uh, went to all their games, really followed those guys. But my grandfather also had season tickets to the Kentucky Colonels basketball team. So I uh, found myself a lot of times at the old Louisville Gardens when the uh, Colonels wore the green and white. Goose Ligon, Louis Dampier, Gene Moore, all those guys. Got to see Rick Berry, Spencer Haywood, Connie Hawkins. I mean, uh, it was a great childhood for somebody who uh, unfortunately didn't have a father. And I spent a lot of time at Old Fairground Stadium during the spring and summer going to Louisville Colonel games. That's really what made me a Boston Red Sox fan, besides the fact that all the rest of my relatives lived in the New England area. So during the summers, I would go up to my grandparents up there and my aunts and uncles up there and actually got to go to Fenway. But I grew up a big Yaz fan. Sure. Um, tried to mimic Yaz when I played youth baseball with my batting stance. Loved the number eight. Uh, remember all the wiffle ball games I'd have in my front yard. Imagining myself as Yaz hitting the ball over the fence at Fenway. And I um, remember going to Fairground Stadium, and you'd always have a hard time hearing the public address announcer because the stock car races or the figure eight races that were going on next door out by Crittenden Drive, out by where the old, gosh, I think it's where the Board of Education building might be now and uh, where the old UofL football practice fields used to be. Uh, there used to be a driving range over there also. Um uh, but there weren't many fans that went to Colonel games. Uh, it always seemed very easy to get foul balls. A foul ball be hit down the left or right field line, and you could pretty much walk to it and pick it up because there just weren't many fans in the stands. But uh, getting to see those Red Sox players like Ben Ogilvie, Cecil Cooper, all those guys, Jim Longboard, Louis Tiant, uh, Tony Caligniero's uh, brother Billy, um, so Luis Alvarado, Carmen Fanzone. I mean, it was just – uh, it was a big part of my childhood. And then, of course, as you mentioned, baseball leaves us in 72. Um, the really only thing that we had left to go to, uh, if you were a sports fan, was University of Louisville sports, uh, or you went to the Kentucky Colonel games. And the Colonels were very good at that time, uh, won many division titles. Uh, UofL football wasn't too bad under Lee Corso. And then, of course, he leaves and T.W. Alley and that crew and they come in here and uh, football starts to go into the tank and, uh, you know, the sports in general in Louisville weren't doing very well. The Colonels leave in 75 and basically fold as the merger occurs between the NBA and ABA. So all of a sudden from uh, 76 on until 82, there's nothing here in the city of Louisville for a guy that's in high school now uh, going to Eastern high school and then going to university of Louisville after that um, there wasn't a lot to do. And I think that was part of the magic when the Redbirds came to Louisville in uh, the spring of 82 when Dan Ulmer uh, went and met with uh, A. Ray Smith over in Springfield, Illinois, and convinced A. Ray to bring his franchise, which at that time was the AAA franchise of the St. Louis Cardinals, and have him relocate uh, at a somewhat renovated Louisville uh, uh, Cardinal Stadium, Fairground Stadium. And, uh, you know, AstroTurf had been put into that uh, facility. Uh, so uh, it mimicked and matched up with uh, the St. Louis Cardinals having turf on their field at Bush Stadium in St. Louis. And uh, I think A-Ray and Dan were able to basically catch lightning in a bottle. Um, it became the in place to go in the spring and summer of 82, 84, 3, 4, 5. Uh, it was quite a ride. And uh, Redbird baseball was the talk of the town. It was the thing to do. And um, many a night there was over 20,000, sometimes 30,000 people there. And uh, it was a fun, uh, it was fun to be part of that. Pretty amazing. Uh, 
you mentioned baseball coming back, and it was a big part of your childhood being able to go to those games before uh, the Colonels moved away. Uh, how excited were you when, when baseball was coming back in 82 and this franchise was moving here, and, and did that sort of get it on your radar that maybe you wanted to work at it with, with the return of, of baseball? Right. Well, I graduated from UofL in, in, in uh, spring of 83 and uh, went to work immediately for Xerox Corporation. Um, at that time, uh, prior to graduating, I had three jobs besides going to school. So it was nice to get a full-time corporate job and, 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 and have my hours free up a little bit. I was making really good money, um, had a chance to participate and go through one of the top sales training programs in the country at that time. But in the back of my mind, um, I always wanted to work in professional sports. Um, I've always had this dream of, of doing it in California, in Southern California, I always worked working for the Lakers or for the Dodgers. I was, for some reason, I grew up a big uh, Los Angeles professional sports fan. Always was that way. It just seemed like books and things that I picked up as a child, magazines, um, the Lakers, the Dodgers, uh, always seemed to be, you know, uh, really top franchises and look like a place that I might want to eventually, if I ever got into pro sports, uh, find a home there. But um, uh, at the time, uh, quickly I found out working for Xerox every day seemed like Groundhog Day. So I could not see myself continue to do that. Uh, my uncle uh, at that time was the voice of Yale football and had been for, he finished up, I think, 33 straight years of uh, calling Yale football games. He was also uh, on Channel 8 in New Haven, Connecticut, and actually did sports there while George Grand was doing the news. So I got to meet George Grand um, as a youngster, and uh, he became part of my life. Uh, in the summer times when I'd go up and visit my relatives, and obviously George and I became closer and closer as I got into baseball, and obviously he was in baseball at that time. And um, so I, uh, a close family friend of ours that went to our church uh, was a banking uh, associate uh, and got to know A. Ray Smith because A. Ray had some accounts at uh, their bank and uh, brokered an introduction uh, for myself with A. Ray uh, as I wanted to explore possibly getting a job with the Redbirds. Prior to that, uh, I was like everybody else in Louisville. I went to Redbird games. Uh, I really looked forward to uh, ladies' night because it gave me an affordable opportunity to take my <laughs> future and, and, and soon-to-be wife to bats ga or to Redbird games and uh, do it on a purse string. Uh, so uh, she quickly also became a Redbirds fan as we went to many Redbird games. And I remember going to opening night against Iowa and uh, the scoreboard not working and uh, Steve Bug being out there on the field with a bullhorn and uh, a lot of the newly renovated parts of Cardinal Stadium haven't quite come together yet. So uh, it, was, uh, it was interesting to watch how they did uh, the first few games there. But um, I, I knew that uh, once I started to be in the ballpark and then had that first conversation with A. Ray, uh, I knew it was something I wanted to do. Uh, the unfortunate thing, I was going to have to take a massive pay cut to do it, um, to go from working with Xerox to basically becoming an intern with the Redbirds in the fall of 84. But uh, I, I felt the pressure from my family and my relatives and my friends who thought I was an absolute idiot for considering leaving such a great job to go chase something that seemed so frivolous. But uh, luckily my wife at that time had just also uh, graduated and then was getting a great job and was going to be able to basically support me uh, when I started out with the Redbirds. So I did. I, I started in the fall of 84. And, um, you know, my first real 
event uh, or get-together or meeting with the Redbird staff uh, in that fall was a retreat to French Lick Resort. And I remember we probably took 24 gym bags, uh, Redbird giveaway gym bags uh, full of alcohol uh, up there and into the hotel up to A-Ray's suite. And basically uh, within a half an hour of arriving at French Lick, we had a full blown bar set up in a race suite and uh, we had cocktail hour up there each and every every afternoon we were there for three days and uh, we had meetings uh, morning and afternoon as we basically brainstormed about how we were going to approach the upcoming 85 season at uh, cardinal stadium and uh, you know we're, there were some unique interesting characters that were part of that first staff i had mentioned steve bug and yeah. steve became a close friend and um, obviously former university of louisville basketball player uh, he was the uh, PA voice of the Redbirds at that time. Uh, also did sales with me as we sold season tickets and group tickets. And uh, we all had a little bullpen area set up uh, in the Redbird office there off the third base concourse. Uh, and uh, Rob Rabenacker was uh, part of that staff. And Rob went on to become the GM of the uh, Jupiter Hammerheads wow. and ran the spring training complex for the St. Louis Cardinals and Montreal Expos for a while. Uh, down in uh, the West Palm Beach area. And uh, we still keep in touch. He now is a franchise owner of Chick-fil-A down there and does quite well. Uh, uh, Larry King was part of that group. Larry was really my manager. Um, I interviewed with Ray, uh, A. Ray first, and then I interviewed with Larry afterwards. And uh, Larry and I got to be good friends, and uh, we still stay in touch with each other. But... Uh, we had a lot of good memories, not only during Redbird games, but also during off-seasons and things of that nature, uh, as Cardinal Stadium was an interesting place, especially the stadium club that we had next door. Uh, that was, I don't know, it was like a sports nightclub, and so many interesting things and interesting people went in and out of there. And one of the neat things about being around A. Ray at that time was A. Ray was friends with so many Hall of Fame baseball players, and it was nothing for Billy Martin Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Harmon Killebrew, Moose Scourin, Satchel Page, uh, dropping into the office unannounced. And, you know, if you're a baseball fan, going to work each day was almost like going to a, a candy store. You just never knew what was going to happen that day, but something good was going to happen, and you are going to be able to meet somebody maybe from your uh, you know, childhood that you may be a baseball player that you uh, uh, really idolized. And uh, Al Kaline came in, and yeah, it was just such a fun time. We did the baseball diamond dinner over at Old Broadbent yeah. Arena. And at that time, that dinner uh, in the winter times, we did a couple of them, uh, was the second largest gathering of the Hall of Famers uh, besides the induction ceremony itself in Cooperstown. And one year we had 33 Hall of Famers, including Joe D., Joe DiMaggio, Stan Musial, uh, Bob Gibson, Joe Torre. I mean, just, the list went on and on and on. And uh, that was such a fun time. And uh, it just... Uh, it was almost like baseball Camelot back there for minor league baseball. It really was. Just uh, some incredible stories from those days. And a couple of notes, uh, Larry King's daughter, Carly, ended up working here 30-plus mm -hmm. years later. Mm -hmm. uh, Steve, Which makes me feel really well, old. Well, I'm sure. Uh, Steve Bug, maybe uh, the most interesting post-Redbirds career of anyone, went on to become a Secret Service agent protesting, protecting presidents. and Whose son and now is a AAA pitcher for yeah. the Florida Marlins. Yep. And um, Steve would do nothing, would wish for nothing more than somehow to get his son into the Reds organization so he could somehow pitch here in Louisville. Yeah. Parker Bug, but uh, yeah. Yeah. And but Steve had some great stories uh, about his secret uh, service days. 
Oh, uh, some of the details he was on. So, oh, they, some amazing stories uh, from from those days for sure. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, a lot of this kind of starts with with A. Ray Smith. Uh, reading about him, uh, seemed like quite the character. Moving baseball here was was owning it. Uh, attempted to buy the Reds at one point. Was trying to move baseball to St. Petersburg, Florida. Didn't and he was actually going to try to move our entire staff down there with him. Well, it, it ended up not working out. Right. Kind of a forerunner to there. There is now baseball in St. Pete with the right. Rays. But um, just just an interesting guy. What what do you? remember about being around him and you mentioned all the relationships he had in baseball and all the names that rolled through largely because of him but but what what was he like to to work for and be around a ray was a combination of uh, vince lombardi woody hayes bear bryant uh, a very generous man but uh, some pretty severe mood swings uh, you just never knew what kind of mood he was going to be in when he came to work and uh uh, unfortunately, there were some folks prior to me uh, the first couple of years that were let go um, for things that you would think wouldn't be very serious infractions or things to you know lose your job over. But uh, Avery was that kind of guy. He was a very intense businessman. Uh, a lot of folks like to call him the P.T. Barnum of minor league baseball back then. I mean, he was um, – Max Packham was a good friend of his who – uh, if folks don't know who Max Packin is, just Google him. Uh, he was one of the first in-game baseball entertainment acts that uh, used to be out there. The clown prince of baseball, right? The clown prince of baseball. He performed at uh, Redbird Games. Um, we were very fortunate to be one of the first minor league teams to have the famous chicken come and perform at. And I got to be good friends with Ted Giannoulis, who is the, the famous chicken. And Ted performed for us numerous times and did some all-star games for us. And... Uh, you know, I still stay in touch, but A. Ray was just such an intense person. And um, <laughs> one of my duties uh, as I became more uh, established in the organization was to drive A. Ray to lunch, uh, which a lot of times would take us over to Hassan hours. And um, A. Ray had an old, uh, well, not an old, but a new LTD that we would drive. I would have to drive and a uh, very impatient person. And a lot of times we would be going down Eastern Parkway either to or from Hassan Hours. And basically he would make me run red lights because he wanted to get either to Hassan Hours quickly or get back to the stadium quickly. So, uh, and he couldn't say my last name. It was always a problem for him because I was Italian. So he would always call me Frenchie. Uh, so that's, that's the way he referred to me. It was, hey, Frenchie, do this. Hey, Frenchie, do that. Take me here. Take me there. But um, we would go to Hassan Hours and um, we would sit. Myself and whoever else from our staff might get to go. We'd sit at a table right next to A-Ray's table as he was conducting business and the social hour and everything else there in Hassan hours. And he was quite a character. And um, you really couldn't mention A-Ray Smith at that time without mentioning his secretary, Alice Neighbors. Mm -hmm. And Alice had been with A-Ray uh, in other places. And uh, she was quite a character herself. Very uh, dignified lady. Uh, very gracious, um, but uh, somebody that just kind of gave a, an intimidating vibe off. And uh, you were always on your P's and Q's when you were around both A. Ray and Alice uh, when you were in the office or really out socially. Um, so you always had to be real careful. But uh, she was quite a young, uh, quite a lady to deal with. And, of course, our secretary at the time and also then grew in her role Mary Barney, mm -hmm. and I'm sure we'll talk about Mary uh, later on here, but uh, 
she was quite uh, quite a figure uh, in our front office at that time also. Yeah, I definitely want to get to, to Mary Barney as she is one of the, I mean, the MVP award, obviously named for her that fans right. know, and, and so many people have, have interacted with her over the years. We'll get to that here in a bit. Uh, going back to the ballpark. So the team moves back. Uh, obviously, before the team left, I think there was natural grass down there at the fairgrounds um, with football and the bleachers being installed. Had to go with the AstroTurf. And um, what do you remember about the setup there? I, I mean, it was obviously huge with all the seating because it was also configured for football, and that ended up being great in the early '80s as there was just uh, an explosion of attendance there and a million fans through the gates in '83. But um, just the the whole setup. There's legend. I mean, there there was uh, a short porch. I think in a right, a little longer in left. Uh, just just a very unique setting for baseball, as it. It really out. was, and even a more unique setting for obviously college football, uh, as a lot yeah. of top teams like Penn State and Tennessee and Texas came in. I just couldn't see them coming into a minor league baseball stadium playing football. But Cardinal Stadium was a big place to get around, um, and it was hard to get around on foot. It would take you a while to get from one side to the other. So golf carts uh, were an important part of our business back then. We drove a lot of golf carts around the facility. But the turf, um, God, it was so hard, and uh, it was like your living room carpet. And I just remember in the summertime playing games, you know, in July and August, and uh, I mean, it would be so hot down there on the turf, and you'd see the heat radiating off the turf, and we'd have, we'd have litter boxes that you'd put your cat in in the dugouts filled with ice water. Uh, for guys to come in between innings because they would wear those plastic cleats for turf, and basically the plastic undersole of their shoe would be melting because wow. it would be 120 to 125 degrees on that turf, especially if you're playing an afternoon game and an early evening game. And they were just trying to cool their feet down. Wow. But the ball would take such hard bounces because the turf was, even though it was astroturf, it was so hard underneath. It was concrete, basically, or asphalt. And um, you mentioned the fence. I mean... Uh, we put basically the blue monster up in right field, trying to simulate something that Fenway hadn't left uh, because it was such a short porch out there, those bleachers that retracted because of football. So we put a, basically a giant um, uh, wooden plywood fence up there that basically had a pitch coming back. It was like a ski slope in reverse. And uh, it was so funny to watch right-handed batters come into that ballpark from other teams and try to take every pitch opposite way, just trying to flip <laughs> it over that short porch and – Obviously, the Redbird pitchers, our staff, uh, our guys learned to pitch inside a lot and not to let the ball drift out over the plate. So the guys wouldn't have that opportunity to hit the ball out of the ballpark the opposite way. But also at that time, it was um, when Howard Schnellenberger first arrived at the University of Louisville football program. And the football complex was right out beyond our left field fence, actually part of our footprint. And so we interacted with the football team with Coach Schnellenberger all the time. Uh, the visiting teams would always go lift weights uh, in the football complex in the mornings. Um, so we always had to go over there and make sure there was nothing going on in the football complex that we'd be interrupting anything. So we got to know those guys pretty well. And um, there was a large parking area right beyond the left field fence for press and media to come park in. Um, but I remember numerous nights where Muhammad Ali would pull in and uh, get out of a car and just walk up to those steps down there in that left field corner and just hang out down there. And all of a sudden, little kids would see him, and they'd run down there, and Champ would start doing magic tricks for kids. You know, it's just a, it was such a unique place. And uh, our operations manager for our stadium, Red Forgey, uh, he was a character himself. And he had his own golf cart. 
And Red would just drive around basically in his golf cart all day long, not only around the ballpark, but around the entire fairground complex. And you always knew Red was going to show up around 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon because he'd always wander up to our stadium club and help himself to maybe a couple <laughs> of free beers and just relax and enjoy the afternoon for a few minutes. So uh, there were just so many characters. Uh, uh, we had uh, a guy that our maintenance staff, we only had really two groundskeepers because, once again, we had AstroTurf. So one of our guys, his name was Little Man, uh, and that's what we all called him. And he was about five foot six, uh, but he was our maintenance guy that basically took care of stuff that fixed, uh, that would break in the course of time. And you have to remember, our office was sitting basically on top of old stables and barns that were underneath us uh, that were ran all the way from the left field foul line all the way over to the right field foul line. And, um, you know, when President Bush uh, finally came, for a re-election visit, uh, that was probably the best thing that ever happened as part of his visit was the fact that those old stables and barns got refurbished and got painted for the first time probably in 20 years. And uh, so it just, um, it was just a lot of character in that building. And of course, backing up adjacent to Freedom Hall, you know, we were always there uh, when all the big concerts would go in and out of Freedom Hall, the big basketball games in the off season. Uh, so it was quite a place. It was an interesting place to go to work each day. Did you get to meet the president when he was in town? I did, yeah. and um, I had three uh, background checks done on myself by the Secret Service. So actually, Nick, I probably learned more about myself that week than I ever knew. I, there were some things that they found that I almost didn't even know. Um, but uh, when the president was there that day, seeing the agents not only at the gates with the dogs, but up in the light towers with high-powered rifles, uh, it, was a, it was an interesting day. It really was wild wild stuff there that is awesome uh you've you've referenced the stadium club a couple of times yeah. um there's a lot of stories that have come out of of that place but some true some kind maybe, of fabricated maybe not you uh, never know you, you mentioned someone helping themselves there jim kelch always talks about how you know at the end of the night it'd be like just put it on my tab and then it'd be like what do I owe? Twenty dollars, like, yep. and it was like I had to have it had to have been a hundred, a hundred. The stadium club was like Las Vegas. Yeah, what happens in the stadium club stays in the stadium club, and um, I mean we had all kinds of we had wedding receptions in there. Of course, our fans were allowed to come in there uh, before, during, and after games. It would be nothing that a game would be done by ten, thirty, eleven o'clock, and at two a.m. in the morning. We're still in there. Uh, it could be our manager, it could be in there, it could be the visiting team's manager, it could be visiting players, it could be our players, uh, local dignitaries. You just never know who was going to show up in the stadium club. A couple of times, uh, Marge Schott came down from Cincinnati when she was the owner of the Reds, and uh, when the Reds were on the road, and she would come by and visit and bring Shotzi with her. And she and Shotzi would be, which Shotzi, for folks that don't know, that was her St. Bernard uh, that she would uh, have with her at all times, and uh, they would be in our stadium club. And there's the infamous night that uh, OJ's car chase took place during one of our home games. And there was a buzz going through the crowd that night during the game uh, as people were starting to learn that this, the car chase was starting to take place. And everybody got up out of their seats and gravitated to the stadium club to where there was almost a line going out of the stadium club, everybody trying to get in there and watch the car chase on the TVs in there. Then there was the night of uh, where the plumbing broke in. Uh, an, an actual uh, uh, men's stall shot water uh, across the entire stadium club uh, area and flooded the whole area as uh, a pipe blew. So uh, a lot of things happened uh, in that old stadium club, uh, a lot of great memories. And we even utilized it when uh, we ran the Louisville River Frogs hockey team for three years. Um, 
after games when we had uh, home hockey games over at Broadbent Arena, a lot of our staff and players would go over to the stadium club across the parking lot and uh, hang out over there. And uh, we had nights where we had Bobby Hall in there, uh, Stan Makita, uh, of course, all the River Frog players. Uh, it, was a, it was a fun group to be around, and those guys really enjoyed uh, uh, being over in the baseball stadium uh, after a hockey game. Yeah, short jaunt to the stadium club. Uh, one other aspect I think a lot of people remember about Cardinal Stadium uh, and going to games there, I know I do. There were a ton of concerts, it seemed like, mm -hmm. there. Um, and I know you had some interaction with some of the folks that came in, some of the acts that were that were uh, that were in town. What do you remember about some of those some of those concerts on the AstroTurf there at Cardinal Stadium, either post game or, or otherwise? Well, the great thing about having AstroTurf is um, you could do a concert quickly after a game and yeah. not worry about hurting the field. Uh, whereas here at Slugger Field, we've got to have two or three days to set a show up, and then a couple three days afterwards to tear the stage down and let the field recuperate. Back then, it's at Cardinal Stadium, that wasn't necessary. So we actually invested in our own stage that folded up into its own semi-tractor trailer that could be hitched to a, a tractor trailer and be driven around the country. So all you had to do was fold the, the uh, sides walls down, and it made its own prefab stage. So all you had to do was preset the stage with your musical equipment and then just get a, a couple of power drills to basically take the bolts out of the left field wall, which the left field wall at Cardinal Stadium was nothing but plywood. And there's a few players that went crashing into that plywood during the course of time trying to chase fly balls. And I tell you what, they paid the price. They really did because that plywood did not give. But long story short, we took the plywood down for many a show. Uh, and within 25 minutes, we'd have the stage uh, pulled onto the field, set up, and we're ready to go for concerts. And we had everything from the Beach Boys several times to Huey Lewis and the News. Uh, if you remember Davy Jones, who played with the Monkees. Uh, and, of course, my favorite, Willie Nelson. Uh, and back at that time, uh, one of my duties was to go and bring the axe, especially if there was solo axe, uh, out of uh, we would usually pull a trailer up behind the left field wall, uh, almost like a giant green room for them to stay in prior to the show so they could relax before they came out. And I had to go get Willie out of uh, that trailer. And I remember opening the door. And, Nick, I mean, no kidding, you could barely – not only see to the end of the of the trail, you could barely see four feet in front of yourself because there was so much smoke from uh, a certain uh, thing that you might uh, partake in. Sure. That Willie was known to enjoy. And uh, it was so funny. Um, but uh, Willie called me Colonel. And uh, uh, I got to drive him onto the field. I mean, I only spent like maybe two minutes driving him from the left field corner. Uh, to the pitcher's mound or right around second base where we dropped him off to enter the stage. But, wow, he was quite a character. And uh, we did other things besides concerts. Um, we also had uh, Robbie Knievel come in yeah. and jump 18 Budweiser trucks prior to a Redbird game one night. And he was with us for an entire week doing practice jumps um, on our field before batting practice in the late mornings. And, uh, you know, Robbie was quite a character also. And uh, – you know, uh, being able to watch him come flying in uh, because basically there was a gate that went around the, or a wall went around the entire uh, complex of Cardinal Stadium. And he was actually out in the parking lot to make his initial entry run and came through that gate. And then actually we had to take the center field wall out and he came through the center field wall, made his jump and landed probably between second base and the pitcher's mound. And we had, uh, positioned in the home plate area against the backstop just hundreds of bales of hay to basically break his 
momentum, and he basically slid into that. But he successfully went over all 18 Budweiser trucks, and that was really cool to see. And, you know, a typical minor league baseball promotion that you might hear about back in those days. I mean, uh, we had Captain and Lady Dynamite who came in and basically blew themselves up prior to a game. Uh, they would put themselves in, in crates to where the explosion would blow out uh, rather than in or up. Uh, and that was part of their minor league baseball act that they would travel around the country and do. But at that time, I was ticket manager of the team. And I remember sitting in my ticket office when the explosion went off. And, you know, back in those old days, I had a huge seating board behind me, behind my desk, that basically had every season ticket identified in the board with a colored pin. And at that time, we were doing quite well. We had over 4,000 season ticket holders. And unfortunately, when that explosion went off, the building shook. And all the pins came out of the board and landed on the floor. So I spent the next three days, along with my staff, repinning the entire seating board for Cardinal Stadium. Um, so, uh, you know, and then we had the brownout one year during a game where the power went out because there was such a drain on energy in the community um, because it was so hot. Uh, our entire ticketing system, and we had just gone with Ticketmaster the year before. Um, so luckily we had roll tickets still left over from the old days in our ticket closet, so we had to go around and, and because when you went to ticket booths at Cardinal Stadium, each ticket booth before we went to Ticketmaster, you took blocks of tickets out to those booths, and if you wanted to sit in right field, you had to go to the right field ticket booth to get those tickets. If you want to sit in left field, you had to go to the left field booth. So we had to quickly run around and put those tickets back out in the system in those booths so people could actually get in, and it was a night we had over 20,000 people in attendance. Oh. So. Then there was the famous uh, quarter beer night uh, that unfortunately oh, yeah. went sideways um, where A. Ray did a quarter beer night. And unfortunately, things got a little out of hand, a little too much uh, beer being enjoyed by our fans. So uh, LMPD had to be called in to help out on that. And of course, there was never another quarter beer night uh, that ever took place after that. And of course, A. Ray was known for his uh, Dixieland band that he brought in, uh, the Rascals of Ragtime, that performed uh, not only in the gazebo, down in the concourse of Cardinal Stadium prior to games, but then they would uh, uh, parade up through the concourse and position themselves right above one of the ramps there behind home plate and play ragtime music uh, during the course of the game, along with our stadium organist. So uh, it was a fun place to be. There was a lot of things happening in that old ballpark. There sure were. A lot of, uh, a lot of childhood memories from, from me, too. Um, I, I know we're running a little bit short on time, so we'll get to – couple more things want to hit before we mm -hmm. let you go uh 2000 obviously moving from that ballpark uh to this downtown ballpark that uh, the team still calls home and uh, a lot went into getting it built on a on a from a from a governmental and sort of a a, a city support side mm -hmm. and finally uh got done after a lot of talk and maybe renovating Cardinal Stadium, ended up deciding to, to put a ballpark downtown to sort of rejuvenate this area. And, and boy, has it been uh, a trendsetter in that, I think, with sure a lot has. of places doing it. Uh, but what do you remember about having to move the entire operation from, from there to, to here? Well, what a lot of people don't remember or know is even when we opened Slugger Field and started playing baseball here, our offices were still sure. – we were still based out of Cardinal Stadium for about half that season. So – uh, it would be nothing as a game would start down here at Slugger Field that we'd have to drive back to old Cardinal Stadium. Uh, maybe we forgot something for the night or we had to go back and get something. So we were making constant trips back and forth um, because the offices here in this facility uh, that we call home now weren't quite ready. Um, so that was interesting. And also the fact that um, the night before opening night, 
our entire staff, we were here all night long. We didn't get any sleep. We were up all night putting picnic tables together. And those picnic tables are still here. And um, we had a very tired staff, but a very energetic staff. We were so excited about uh, what was about to happen as far as opening the doors to 401 in East Main. And, and, you know, who would have known? And we knew it was going to be a success story when it was talked about being built here and when it first opened. But to see what Slugger Field has now become is really the anchor for the, basically the redevelopment of this end of downtown. Uh, and as a native Louisvillian, uh, I mean, I, God, I take so much pride in that because um, I remember when we first got down here um, and there was a lot of vacant uh, warehouses and, and, and buildings around us, and it wasn't a very pretty neighborhood. And now that you walk out these doors and look around and see everything that's been built, the waterfront, all the, uh, the businesses that are now in this area, all the people that live in here and call this a neighborhood, uh, which then led to the development of, of East Market and the new area. Uh, you know, once again, if there hadn't been the success of Louisville Slugger Field, who knows what direction this end of downtown might have gone. Yeah, it's it's uh, been something I've been able to see in my lifetime as well as a native Louisvillian. It's been incredible. Uh, we mentioned her earlier, Mary Barney, has yeah. been, uh, was a fixture in this organization for, for a long time. Um, and I think everyone has a story about interacting with her and, you know, players, coaches, anyone that sort of rolled through the organization exactly. in that time. What was, what was well, we kind of, uh, you know, obviously affectionately called her the first lady of baseball and she loved being called that. She really did. And, uh, she was good friends with all the scouts. Uh, they all loved coming into Louisville and, and saying hi to Mary. And obviously she was very good friends with our managers. Um, uh, her relationship with Jim Fergosi is legendary. Uh, Jim was quite a character. Um, seems like you couldn't get uh, a third word out without having it be a careful uh, cuss word if you had a conversation with him. He's quite a character. But Mary really was the backbone of the franchise, uh, uh, the day-to-day person who uh, made sure that everything ran smoothly. Obviously, uh, we had A. Ray, and then, of course, um, uh, Gary Ulmer took over with Dale Owens, and uh, they both uh, did a great job. Dale first as he came over from Louisville Downs. Um, he was my mentor. He taught me everything that I know, took me under his wing, and uh, I owe everything to Dale. Uh, he was a fabulous guy, uh, so gregarious, uh, just loved to talk, loved to engage with the fans, engage with the sponsors, and he was just such a wonderful man, and we're so sorry that we lost him at such a young age. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gary stepped in and, and brought a lot of uh, his background from banking uh, and, and really uh, – made uh, the Louisville Bats more of a, of a day-to-day baseball business. Uh, so uh, we owe a lot to Gary. But, again, Mary Barney, um, she was really the thread that ran through all of that during that time frame. And, um, I mean, on a personal note for me, when I had my uh, serious car accident back in '05 and missed so much time as I was in uh, ICU and, and out of the office for a long time in the hospital, Mary would be there every day and a lot of times spend the night in the hospital room uh, with my wife and, and uh, you know, just being there and nobody, you know, nobody asked Mary to do that. It was just the way Mary was. I mean, uh, you became part of her family. And, you know, Mary was so gracious to have the Bats family over each Christmas as we had our office Christmas party at her houses and such great memories of being around her family because uh, they were such a wonderful family. And they took us all in and made us feel so warm and at home and, uh, you know, Mary's a fantastic lady, and the, we thought, you know, when we came up with the uh, Most Valuable Player Award, it was only fitting to name it after her, and um, it just makes me proud each year that uh, when we give that away, we get to, you know, obviously mention Mary's name again. Yeah, uh, 
her legacy certainly lives on in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways here. Uh, real quick, five or so more minutes. Sure. Want to run through maybe a quick sort of lightning round from, okay. some, from some different things and just quick okay. thoughts on, sure. on what you – St. Louis Cardinals, first one. That was, the, that was the Major League affiliate when you started. A lot of fun. Uh, when I first started, our PR directors were Mark Reese, Pee Wee Reese's son, and Jim Herzog, Whitey Herzog's son. And we became good friends. We played basketball, golf, uh, tennis together, uh, enjoyed our time with him. I became a big Cardinals fan. Um, got to know Vince Coleman, all those guys, Terry Pendleton. Uh, we were pretty spoiled back then those first couple of years when I came on board because uh, we went on in 85 and won our title. And, um, you know, uh, we went to some World Series and playoff games. Uh, we went to a uh, playoff series uh, clincher in St. Louis one year when they were playing the Giants, uh, game seven. Uh, after the game was over, we wandered across the street, went into the hotel for the Giants. There was a giant party room set up for them to celebrate Ooh. the title if they had won and gone on to the World Series. Unfortunately, the Cardinals knocked them out. So we just helped ourselves to the spread of food that was in there. <laughs> and we had quite a feast thanks to the San Francisco Giants at that time. So uh, that's one of my most fondest memories of the Cardinals. Thanks, Cardinals and Giants. That's, right. that's fantastic. Uh, it was brief, but Milwaukee Brewers. Very brief. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I got to watch Cecil Cooper play as a young child, and then I got to know Cecil Cooper as that time. He was the farm director of the Milwaukee Brewers, and we joined them in 98 and 99. Uh, our first year with the Brewers, we won the divisional title. Rafi Belliard, Jeff Jenkins. Yeah. Uh, we had some good players here, and uh, Paul Krause. And um, we went on uh, and had a really good year. Um, but the thing about the Brewers was, unfortunately, people here in Louisville couldn't really follow the Brewers. They couldn't really get their arms wrapped around the Brewers. Uh, it was just um, a vanilla relationship to them. Um, so I think everybody here in Louisville obviously was excited when we switched over and became the affiliate of the Reds in 2000. The Reds? The Cincinnati Reds. I mean, it's the team we all grew up rooting for, especially the big red machine in the 70s. It just always seemed, uh, even when the Redbirds were playing, whether it was Nashville, Indianapolis, Denver, wherever the Reds might be affiliated at the time, it would be such a natural if, if someday down the road, there could be a partnership between the Reds and the Louisville baseball franchise. And it finally came to play and came to be in 2000. And uh, as you guess would say, the rest is history. I mean, we've had a wonderful relationship with them. It's so great to have, and I'm sure the Reds love the fact that uh, an hour and a half away is their AAA affiliate. And you and I both have experienced numerous times where guys have been called up at dinner time, and there they are. You turn on the TV yep. that night, and they're either pinch hitting or pitching in a game in relief. And um, again, it's been a great partnership because People in Louisville can turn on the TV, watch uh, uh, Bally Sports, Fox Sports Ohio, and watch all the guys that played here for the Bats go on and play for the Reds. Uh, it's been phenomenal. Uh, AAA All-Star Games, you've been a part of two of them, 91 and at the old place, 2008 yep. here. Got to uh, uh, basically run the one in 91, and uh, it still, I think, is the most heavily attended All-Star, right, yeah. 22,000 people we had that night. And the thing I remember is it rained almost the entire morning. Um, that's one of the blessings of having artificial turf. We were able to get the game in. Um, we weren't very good at that time. It was one of our worst Redbird teams. Uh, our representatives uh, were a couple of our relievers. They were quite a, a cast of characters, though, and they had a great time. But uh, we had a lot of fun putting that game on. Uh, we had Lou Rawls here as entertainment and uh, at the uh, gala the night before down at the Gall House. And then we came back and did it again in, in 2008. And, uh, uh, boy, that was a hot night. It was about 95 degrees. And uh, 
when you do an all-star game, I tell you what, it's a lot of work. It's like having a second season going on at the same time you have your current season going on. Uh, so it really pulled our staff uh, in a lot of different directions is trying to get those together. But I think both of those events were very successful. And, of course, a lot of people don't remember, we hosted a baseball winter meetings here. Sure. At the Galt House in 91. And uh, that was the time when uh, uh, the Indians came to Louisville and were protesting uh, uh, comments made uh, by Mark Schott. Uh, Barry Bonds had just signed as a free agent that year. Uh, I remember taking Barry through the kitchen of the Galt House, putting him and running him through there. But probably my biggest memory from that was getting to meet Tommy Lasorda and uh, just being able to sit there and talk baseball with Tommy Lasorda for about 45 minutes in the Galt House. Um, but the other thing I remember about the winter Mings that year, it was like 10 degrees, it seemed like, every day. And the normally when you're at a winter meetings, usually the exhibitor convention space is adjoining wherever the hotel might be. Well, here, unfortunately, couldn't. It was up a couple of blocks, and I just remember all the vendors and people that were going to the trade show every day just dreading to go outside in the 10-degree cold and walking up there. But I also remember the fact that this was really before cell phones and the fact that the switchboard at the Gull House uh, could not keep up with the amount of calls that were coming and going in and out of the switchboard because of all the agents and players. And we basically crashed their system, but also the fact that we drank their bar dry every night uh, <laughs> as everybody just gathered in the bar at the uh, basically the entrance level of the Gull House and they had to finally bring a couple of Budweiser trucks and just park them outside the door each and every night just to continually bring beer in because we'd be drinking beer till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. A winter meetings tradition. Unlike everything else, it still it, continues. It lives on to it this does. day. It does. It uh, does. That is fantastic, Greg. This has been awesome. I uh, hope everyone has enjoyed the trip down memory lane. I know I sure have. We could do another hour on different names, and maybe we'll do a part two at some point Sounds good. during this. But, but uh, again, thank awesome. you for having me. It's an honor to be the first person, and I look forward to hearing the rest of the series. Uh, yeah, it's been great. Thanks, Greg. You're welcome. Great stuff with Greg. Uh, we'll have to catch up with him again for a part two to kind of bring uh, his perspective more on different things that have happened uh, in downtown since the team moved uh, to Louisville Slugger Field. Obviously, uh, a lot of memories from him and, and looking forward to catching up with him again for a part two to this conversation. But no better person to get this podcast kicked off than the man that's been here longer than anyone, Greg Galliette. Next week, episode two, we look forward to welcoming former BATS president Gary Ulmer to the podcast. Uh, a lot of great perspective about the franchise moving from the fairgrounds and Cardinal Stadium to this downtown ballpark, Louisville Slugger Field. Gary was heavily involved in that process and a lot of great insight from him and more from his years with the Bats. He's been associated with the team a long time and certainly his family. You'll hear from Gary next week. Again, like, comment, leave a review, subscribe to the podcast. We appreciate you however you're tuned in, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. For episode two, I'm Nick Curran. It is Louisville Bats franchise at 40. Thanks for being with us.